As I mentioned last week, we are going to be looking at Mark's Gospel, and the last time we were in Mark's Gospel, we got to chapter 14, verse 53. So I'm going to read from Mark chapter 14, verse 53, through to verse 65. Let's again stand to hear God's word. Mark 14, 53 to 65, Jesus on trial. They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests, and the elders, and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any, for many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and he came forward and he questioned Jesus, saying, Do not answer. What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and he did not answer. Again the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. They began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. May God bless his word to us as we consider that in just a moment. Please be seated. Let's come again to God in prayer. Father in heaven, our Lord and our God, as we now turn to your word, we turn to you. Very... Seeking, first of all, um, expectant, and even coming to you boldly, knowing full well that you speak to us, because you've written down all that you want us to know. Therefore, as we hear and as we read, we pray that you'll open our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit within your word and within our lives to understand, first of all, but more than that, also to be able to apply the truths, apply them to our lives individually and as a church together so that we can glorify you as our Lord and our God. And I pray that you'll open my mouth to speak your word for your glory. Amen. Now you may uh, know that Israel always had a very good system of law. Our law actually is based pretty much on theirs. And uh, the details of that law, uh, a lot of it is in the book of Deuteronomy. Now the book of Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy means second law, um, was really um, given to the people of Israel as they were about to enter the promised land. And God wanted to remind them, to to reiterate on exactly what he expected of them when they entered this promised land. God gave instructions to Moses as how they should live in this land of Canaan. And there are all kinds of instructions in this book of Deuteronomy, which is pretty much a reiteration of the law that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. But in chapter 16, we get some very uh, important uh, sort of uh, responsibilities and instructions as to how 
the people were to function as a society in a just way um, how the law system should work it says in verse 18 to 20 you shall appoint for yourselves judges and officers in all your towns which the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment you shall not distort judgment you shall not be partial you shall not take a bribe for a bride blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the right words of righteous. Justice you shall pursue, that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Now, throughout the history of Israel, there was a great effort to take such instruction very seriously. And over the years, the Jewish people developed a very sophisticated and a very just system of justice. And they were very proud of it. And one of the things that they were very proud of was this particular section here in Deuteronomy 16, to be a just society, to have a system of laws, a system of courts and judges who would be able to maintain justice in Israel. And by the time we come to the life of Jesus, and we've got enough information historically to know how that system was working. The law was applied in every locality. There were no frontiers in Israel which could really be defined as lawless. There were synagogues virtually in every place and every town and the synagogue was pretty much the centre of justice as well as the centre of the learning of God's word and worship. Really much uh, the, the law caught in that area. If a town had 120 or more men they could have a local court called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin uh, basically that's a word meaning uh, a gathering together, a coming together or sitting together. And that court if they had over 120 men in that particular town or village it would comprise of 23 men always an odd number so that there could be a, a, a vote that would, uh, wouldn't be a stalemate and these would make a, a court in any place where there were 120 men and these would be elders they really sat as judges in that court one of them would be delegated as the ruler we quite often read of rulers in Israel not political rulers not monarchical rulers but they were pretty much judges and all judgment would be centered around that religious establishment these elders these judges in the synagogue if the town was smaller they would still have a court in a sense if they had less than 120 men but they would perhaps have uh, three judges or five judges or seven judges. It always had to be an odd number, obviously, for the same reasoning again. These councils, these courts, were responsible for governing the community around them. They made the decisions, the legal decisions, in matters of every kind. Obviously, in Jerusalem, you had the Supreme Court, in, in a sense, the great Sanhedrin that we read about a lot in the Gospels, that comprised 70 men plus one to make it an odd number, and that one was the high priest. And essentially, uh, the legal system was made in that way. Laws were absolute and binding, judgments, decisions were unequivocal. Once there was a law, there were no exceptions. Trials had to be public. All trials had to have a prosecution and a defence. No accusation could ever be made against anyone unless they had at least two or three witnesses. Again, that's established in Deuteronomy. False witnessing was a very, very serious crime. In fact, it says in Deuteronomy 19 verse 16 that if you gave false witness against somebody, you, if you were caught would face the same punishment that that person would face whatever crime they'd committed. 
Therefore you can imagine, if that person was accused of a crime which carried the death sentence, if you gave false witness in that particular trial and you were caught, you would face the death sentence. So that's pretty serious. So whatever the sentence was, you'd face it if you were a false witness. So it, it really made a pretty good system of law. As I say, if the penalty was death and you gave false witness, you would die. Some more things about the court in Israel. If the penalty of death was given, there had to be a period of 24 hours before the execution took place. That was just in case any further evidence came forth. Witnesses who determined guilt were also instructed to be the first ones to throw the stones. Death was by stoning and they would be required to throw the stones. That made you pretty clear. If you were going to give witness you have to make sure that you were pretty clear that the person had actually done whatever it is that they'd done. No criminal could be tried at night. No trial could continue into the night if it began in the day. In fact they would never have a trial in an afternoon because it made it a bit more difficult because chances are it would go into the night. Judges had to fast because they took their responsibility very seriously. Trials were never allowed on the Sabbath, that is a Saturday, never allowed on a feast day such as Passover. They weren't actually even allowed on the day before a feast day. Now all that gives you a bit of a feeling as to the system of justice that rose out of the instruction of Moses in Deuteronomy 16. And you might be thinking, why are you telling me all that? What's the relevance of all of this? Well, I'll tell you all of this because the Jewish trial of Jesus violated all of these laws. All of them. The trial of Jesus violated all the principles of justice and perpetrated the greatest miscarriage of justice that's ever been seen on this planet. It was illegal right from the very beginning in every possible way. That was the Jewish trial. Jesus also had a Gentile trial. That was also equally unjust. The secular tribunal was also a travesty of injustice, a violation of the truth. Now this Jewish trial that Jesus faced uh, had three phases. Uh, the Gentile trial also had three phases. There were three sections to each of the trial. In other words, Jesus stood trial six times before a judge or judges. Six different times in a period of less than five hours. And all these trials were sort of accelerated in the hours ending just before dawn on the Friday morning of the last week of Jesus' life. Leaving time for the mockery, the scourging and the crucifixion by nine o'clock in the morning on the Friday. Mark chapter 15 verse 25 says he was crucified at nine o'clock. So what we've got then, we've got the religious trial of the Sanhedrin which had three parts. There was an indictment or a charge before Annas. Then we have the trial before Caiaphas. And then a public retrial in the morning before the Sanhedrin. That's the religious side. Then we get the secular side. Jesus is brought before Pilate. Then he's sent to Herod. And then he's brought back to Pilate for the final death sentence. And the whole trial was over before dawn. There was only one little part actually that was done in daylight. And that was a third part of the Jewish trial. And all that was was simply a repeat of what they'd already done in the dark just to give it some sort of legitimacy, to make it at least look legal. They reenacted the trial in a sort of hurried up fashion to pretend that they'd stuck to the law. 
Jesus was crucified at nine o'clock in the morning. The judgment of God then fell between twelve o'clock and three o'clock when it went dark. And Jesus died at three o'clock in the afternoon and he was buried before sundown. We pick up the account in verse 53. Jesus had been arrested and bound, if you remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane with the coalition of the Sanhedrin, the, the temple police, the Roman soldiers. He was then led away to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, the religious establishment, they were all there gathered together. Peter, we're told, followed at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest and he was sitting there with officers warming himself by the fire. It can get quite uh, cold on the night time in Israel. Chief priests and the whole council kept trying to gain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they couldn't find any. Many men were given false testimony, we read. The testimony wasn't consistent and the high priest eventually comes forward and he questions Jesus and he said, well, don't you answer? Why, why aren't you saying anything? Why aren't you answering? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent at that point. Again, the high priest then says, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And at that point, Jesus does answer and he says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And at that point, that's when he, the high priest, tears his clothes and he says, What further need do we have of witnesses? You heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they're all condemned him to death. And they began to spit him at him and blindfold him and beat him and really mock him in so many ways. The illegalities of this trial is blatant. The, the first thing that they did that was wrong, that was illegal, according to their own laws was that there was an illegal indictment, an illegal charge. Let's start with that, the illegal charge. Before they even arrested Jesus, by the way, they'd already decided what they were going to do. Before they'd even caught him, before they'd ever arrested him, they decided, we're going to kill him. they already made that decision. The procedure was just a sort of a formality, look, looking really for a, a reason uh, to explain to the people who they were a little bit worried about why it was that they were killing Jesus. They had to try and find a reason. So verse 53 says, They led Jesus away to the high priest, and the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. This is the great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, 70 men plus the high priest. They've come together illegally because it's the middle of the night. Deuteronomy says you can't do that. You can't have a trial at night. But they had a trial at night. They've been in the garden, remember. They've had Jesus arrested because Judas has betrayed him. It was the middle of the night. Now what they have to do is come up with a reason to execute him. Matthew and Mark give us a record of the main trial. John adds the first phase, so I'm just going to leave Mark for the moment. I'm just going to go to John 18, because John tells us a little bit more that Mark doesn't mention. In John 18, it says he was led away to the high priest, and then something else happened in verse 12 to 13. The Roman cohort and the commanders and officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him, and led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. First of all, what they did with Jesus, after they'd arrested him, they took him to Annas. Now, Annas wasn't the high priest. He had been the high priest some years earlier, 20 years earlier, actually, for about five or six years. But for some reason, history tells us that the Romans had got rid of him. They'd deposed him. But he had a lot of power, and he was really still in charge. 
So from the next five high priests, he made sure that his sons were all high priests after him. And by this time, Caiaphas is the high priest and Caiaphas was his son-in-law. So Annas is really in charge. He's the one behind all the high priests. He's the one really running the show, although he has technically been deposed. At the time of the trial, he was probably in his 80s. And he's the one who has to come up with an indictment, a charge against Jesus. He was the one still behind the scenes, orchestrating everything. Uh, By the way, the people hated him, because if you remember, um, actually they called the the things in the temple, all the... Um, means for making money and selling doves and exchanging money they called it the Bazaar of Annas because he was behind it all and he was really ripping the people off charging way too much for exchanging doves way too much for exchanging coins and and he he was making himself very very rich so the people didn't like him at all but he passed on his power to his sons also remember Jesus had attacked that when he went in to the temple and he knocked over the tables and he caused a real rumpus and that really really upset Annas particularly so Annas was a racketeer a mafia boss really in the sense he saw Jesus therefore as a very serious threat to his financial empire so Annas hated Jesus for all that he'd done and his job was to come up with a charge against Jesus while he's before Annas the Sanhedrin were gathering at the house of Caiaphas to plot their illegal mock trial And while Jesus was before Annas, John also tells us that Peter, at that time, was denying Jesus. Because he was at Caiaphas' house warming himself by the fire. So you've got a number of things going on here. The Sanhedrin have gathered. Peter's denying Jesus. Annas is trying to figure out a way to, to come up with some sort of charge and indictment against Jesus. And then he questions Jesus and his disciples about his teaching. That was actually illegal because you weren't allowed to do that. That's self-incriminating. Even in our courts today, no accused person can incriminate themselves. There's no confession without evidence. You can't have that admissible as a charge. You can't come up with a charge against somebody by getting them to confess something without evidence. That's not legal. Wasn't then, still isn't legal today. But that's what they did. Annas was asking Jesus to admit something for which he can be executed. He's trying to get Jesus to condemn himself. So he said, tell me about your disciples, tell me about your teaching. Let me see if I can find a way to to have this man killed. And Jesus says, well, I've spoken openly to the world, I've taught in the synagogues, I've taught in the temple. Everyone's heard me, I haven't said anything in secret. It's all out there, why do you question me? Question the people who've heard me. They've all heard what I said. Jesus is basically saying, this is illegal. This, This should be a legal process, but it's not. He knows that he's not allowed to self-incriminate himself. Well, Annas really didn't like that. Because you can imagine, this is a very powerful man, very proud man. He's in charge. And how dare this carpenter from Nazareth question me? And when he said this, one of the officers standing nearby punched Jesus. And he says, is that the way that you answer the high priest? Again, Annas wasn't the high priest, but he is basically in control. Jesus then said, well, if I've spoken wrongly, tell me what I've said. If I've spoken rightly, why have you hit me? Now, Annas can't cope with him now. Annas is starting to really get upset. So verse 24 says, Annas sent him to Caiaphas, bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And that's where the main trial takes place. 
The religious, religious trial is a sham, it's a fraud, the decision's already been made, the whole thing was illegal. There's no crime, there's no witnesses, there's no testimony, so the whole thing was a false. Uh, also, it's in the middle of the night, it's not in a proper court, there aren't any duly appointed judges, there's no legal authorities, there's no prosecutors, there's no defence. The whole thing's a sham. They just want Jesus dead. And they were desperately trying to figure out how can we get him to say something that will give us an excuse to kill him. So they ramp up the violations before the people start to show up. Remember they're a little bit afraid of the people because remember Jesus is healed and he's done amazing things to the, for the people, he's fed them. So the, the religious leaders are thinking we, we can't do anything, um, we don't want to cause a riot, we don't want the people to get upset so we're going to get this done quickly, get him killed and before the people possibly riot. So Matthew 26 verse 57 says they sent Jesus to Caiaphas and by the time Jesus arrives the Sanhedrin have gathered, collected at Caiaphas's house, that's another breach of protocol, they weren't allowed to do that. But John 18 verse 15 says they met at Caiaphas's house, they were actually required to meet at the Hall of Judgment by the way, that's where they were supposed to meet, they didn't do that, that was illegal again. So they met at his house, not in the temple complex, in the middle of the night. Again, as I already said, that was Ill illegal. Also, it wasn't public. Again, that was illegal. The whole thing's illegal. They were in the wrong place, at the wrong time, with the wrong people. Everything was wrong. Furthermore, the Jewish law, the Sanhedrin, they couldn't initiate the charges. They could only investigate the charges. That's what courts do today. But here they were trying to initiate the charge. You have to have an indictment before you can have a trial. You can't investigate the charge until a charge has been established. You can't get somebody and say, right, we're going to kill you, and all we've got to do is figure out a charge, we'll do that in a minute. That, that's just ridiculous. There's nothing to investigate. And to make matters even worse, it was at Passover, which I've already told you, that was illegal too. Even the day before Passover was illegal. Let's go back to Mark now then. We go to the trial, the house of Caiaphas. Mark gives us a quick glimpse of Peter. He says, Peter followed at a distance into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the officers warming himself by the fire. So Peter's there in the courtyard. The house of Caiaphas. The officers, they're all warming themselves, trying to blend in. Peter's in a very, very vulnerable spot. We're going to see that next Sunday when we get to verse 66. The Sanhedrin was inside in one of the rooms, which there shouldn't be. Typically the house was built on four sides and there was a courtyard in the middle. Now the Sanhedrin, they need to work fast. As far as they are concerned, the trial needed to be done and finished before dawn. Peter's denials took place before the cock crows, that was three o'clock in the morning. So all of this is going on before three o'clock in the morning because that hasn't happened yet. So Jesus is in a large room, Peter's on the outside, near the fire. He's probably caught with uh, curiosity and cowardice, perhaps a little loyalty to Jesus despite his fear. So that's the illegal charge. The next thing that we see that's illegal is the testimonies. We get these testimonies. The chief priest, it says in verse 30, 55, and the council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Now as I've already said, they've already decided that he's guilty. They've already decided the outcome. Although, and this is the most ridiculous thing about it, they don't know what he's guilty of, they just think he's guilty. 
I mean, how silly, how ridiculous, how tragic is that? Yes, he's guilty, um, and in a moment we're going to find out what he's guilty of. They determined also the sentence. He's guilty, and the sentence is going to be death when we find out what he's guilty of. All we've got to do now is find a crime to fit that sentence. In order to find a crime, they have to have somebody to give a testimony to a crime. As far as they were concerned, the execution set. All they've got to do is make it look like it's legal. So you have these religious people, very fastidious about the law normally, trying to find liars in the middle of the night. That's what's going on here. All these religious people who are very fastidious, they're trying to find liars in the middle of the night. And Matthew 26 verse 59 says they were bribing people. Again, Deuteronomy 16 says you're not allowed to bribe people. That's exactly what they were doing. They were going around in the middle of the night trying to drum up false witnesses by giving them money. So that they would lie and give false testimony against Jesus. But at first they couldn't find anyone. Obviously, it's not the best of time to look for witnesses in the middle of the night. So they had a problem, obviously. A lot of people would have been in bed. However, they were very determined. And they eventually did find somebody, because they were offering them a lot of money. They bribed them. They paid money out of the temple treasury. There was a lot of money available in the temple treasury. This is the same way that they paid Judas. The same way that they later paid the Roman guards, the soldiers who were guarding the tomb, to lie about the resurrection. They used the same money, basically. It's a bit like taking out the, the church collection to pay, to bribe people. At first, they couldn't find any people that would lie or give any testimony concerned as a death penalty. Again, obviously, because, as I've already said, if you lied at a trial where the death penalty was concerned, you could end up, if you were caught, being killed. So they had to offer some serious money, which they obviously did. They had a lot of money offer, on offer. And if you've got enough money, you can pretty much find anybody to say anything, as long as you've got enough money to bribe them. And that's obviously what happened. Of course... All the testimonies weren't consistent, because it's been done too quickly. They didn't have time to agree on what they were lying about. There wasn't too much planning. So, verse 57 says, some began to give false testimony against Jesus. But even, verse 59 says, in this respect, their testimony was not consistent. They didn't have time to agree about all these lies. And by the way, nobody was seeking to get a witness for Jesus in his defence. Again, that's illegal. He had to have a defence, but they just ignored that. Jesus himself said in John 18, there's lots of testimony about what I've said and what I've done, it's all there available, but they didn't want anyone to defend Jesus, they just wanted him dead, as quickly as possible. So the witnesses that showed up, they were bribed, the stories were garbled, they were confused, in fact they mangled it so badly that in verse 58 it says that they said, Jesus said, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another one made without hands. Now Jesus didn't say that, at all. That was just a confusion. What Jesus did say is, destroy this temple, meaning his body, and in three days I'll rise it up again. Uh, John 2 verse 19 to 22. He wasn't talking about the temple, he was talking about his body. He never said that he would destroy the temple and in three days build it up another one without using hands. That was just false. He didn't say that. 
He did say back in the 13th chapter that God was going to bring uh, destruction, a judgment on Jerusalem and the temple would eventually be destroyed and it would not be built again ever and it hasn't been to this day. He did say that but that's another thing altogether. So, still bent on killing Jesus, these religious leaders wouldn't relent. This wasn't a trial, it was a conspiracy. They couldn't come up with a legitimate crime. They needed to sort of convince the Romans, so the Romans would execute them and let the religious leaders off the hook. So far, then we have this illegal charge and illegal testimony. The third thing that we see that's wrong here is in verse 60. We also have an illegal interrogation. So the high priest stood up, and he's really getting upset now, he's getting frustrated. First effort bringing in the witnesses had collapsed. And the high priest stands up and he questions Jesus, don't you answer, what is it that these men are testifying? Now Jesus had no legal duty to respond to lies by virtue of their own law. And actually by virtue of their own law, all of these liars should have been executed, because this is a sentence of death. So they should have been killed. He has no legal duty to respond to bribed false witnesses and liars. So he just doesn't say anything. That's why he's silent. He doesn't speak. He understood the legal order. That fulfills, uh, by the way, Isaiah 53. He was oppressed, afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep that's silent, he did not open his mouth. So at this point he's silent. He had no obligation to make sense of their lies. There's nothing legal going on here at all. By the way, there must have been a deafening silence. And we also read later in the trial in Luke 23 that he was also silent before Herod. And in Luke, uh, John sorry, 19, he was also silent before Pilate. So he doesn't answer when they bring in all these lies. He's majestic, really, in his silence. And they didn't know it, but God was using them in spite of themselves because according to John 11... Verse 49 and 50, Caiaphas said, It's expedient that one man die for the people, that the whole nation not perish. In other words, Caiaphas says, We've got to kill Jesus before he starts an insurrection. Before the Romans come down and take away all our freedom and our powers, we've got to save, kill Jesus to save the nation. But then it says in John 11 verse 51, He didn't say this on his own initiative, but being high priest, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. God used his evil words to have a prophecy of the death of Jesus. So Jesus was majestic in his silence, and all the while there's Satan behind the scenes, cranking up the tsunami of hatred and blindness and sinfulness in the black hearts. These people, they just can't see the truth. They're just so hell-bent, literally hell-bent, on destroying Jesus. So far then in the trial, it wasn't a legal aspect of the whole thing. It was an illegal charge, it was an illegal testimony, it was an illegal interrogation. That brings us to the sentence, which is also illegal. If he wants to kill Jesus, the high priest has to make his move now. He's only got one option left. And we see that option in verse 61. The high priest questioned him saying, Are you the Christ, the Son of of the blessed one remember Christ means Messiah are you the Messiah are you the son of God now he asked that deliberately because he knew full well that such a claim a title of equality with God a title of deity would be blasphemy if anybody else on the entire planet said it so if anybody else said yes I am the Messiah the son of God they should be killed according to their law 
By the way, Matthew chapter 26 verse 63 said, The high priest began by saying, I adjure you by the living God. That's the heaviest oath possible. It's a common Jewish way of laying down a serious responsibility to speak the truth. So he's saying, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? Now he knows that if Jesus says yes, he's got him. Because that would be blasphemy. If it weren't for the fact that Jesus actually is the Son of God. Anyone else, it would be blasphemy. And for the first time in the whole situation of this trial, we get a legitimate question. Because he's not saying, what have you done? He's saying, who are you? That's a legitimate question. That's the first legitimate thing in the whole trial. Of course, Jesus knew the intent of the question. The intent of the question wasn't legitimate, but it was a legitimate question. Who are you? But he was trying to play the final card, the blasphemy card. You see, they all knew that Jesus did claim to be God. This isn't the first time that he would admit it. They knew that he claimed to be the Messiah. He'd done it again and again. They knew he claimed to be the Son of God repeatedly. So they confront him and say, right, are you the Son of God? And Jesus finally answers. He uses the tetragrammaton. Um, in the Greek it's egoimi. It's I am. Now if you know your Old Testament, when uh, Moses said, who are you? God didn't give him a name. He just said, I am. I mean, I am is who I am. I just am. I'm God, in other words. I am. So Jesus deliberately uses that, I am. And all the Jewish people, they don't know exactly what he meant by saying, I am, because that's the name of God. That's who God said he is. And Jesus says, I am. And Jesus knows full well that that will mean he will die. But after all, that's where he's headed. And he knows that. He's going to the cross. And he even enhances his answer. He's not just saying, I am. He then says, and you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In, you know, if it had been a man, he would have said, I am. But let me explain what I mean by that. You know, don't condemn me just yet. But he doesn't do that at all. He, he ramps it up even more. He says, yes, I'm the Messiah. Yes, I'm the Son of God. And you will see me sitting on the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Just in case you don't understand what I mean by I am, now you know who I am. Psalm 110 says in verse 1, The Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. My power refers to God. Jesus is saying, yes, I'm God. And I sit at his right hand. I'm God the Son, I sit at the right hand. And not only that, I'm the one coming in the clouds of heaven, I'm the Son of Man. That's a term taken from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to 14. It's a messianic title. And Jesus knows that these words will bring about his death. He's now ready. He's been through the garden. He's doing the Father's will. And he's going all the way to the cross. And that's when we get the verdict, which is unjust. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? Verse 63. Tearing his clothes with a ceremonial contrived display of, a, in this case, fake righteous indignation. It was a, usually a sign of grief. According to Leviticus 21, the high priest could only do that if God was blasphemed. So he thinks that God's been blasphemed. And Caiaphas at this moment calls an end to all the illegalities with an illegal sentence. He condemns Jesus to blasphemy, which is ironic, because he is the blasphemer, and the whole council of the blasphemers, because the fact is, Jesus is the Messiah. He wasn't lying. 
He hasn't blasphemed. He's told the truth. He is God. He is the one who sits at the right hand of God, on the throne of God. Therefore, he's not the blasphemer. They are. And they render him the blasphemer. You've heard the blasphemy, verse 64. And they condemn him of deserving death. And it's unanimous. Which, as I say, if he had been just a man, that would have been the right verdict. But he wasn't. He is God in human flesh. Verse 65 says they began to spit at him and hit him with their hands. Of course, the tragic thing about all this is that they were the ones on trial, not Jesus. When Jesus is before Pilate, it's actually Pilate before Jesus. When Jesus is before the Sanhedrin, it's actually the Sanhedrin before Jesus. God judges them. And the sentence of judgment actually fell on them. And the really sad thing is the same sentence falls on anyone who rejects Jesus Christ. And ironically, it's these kind of people, and the kind of people that we all are, because we're all sinful, that Jesus went to the cross to die for. He's dying for all people, because all people are sinful, to provide salvation, but only if you repent and accept him as Lord and Saviour. And that's what was going on here. And next week, we're going to see about Peter's denial. It's amazing how low you can fall and then still come back. We know that Judas fell and he didn't come back. But next week, we're going to see that Peter fell terribly. He, he, he denied so blatantly. And yet, he was forgiven and accepted again. But for now, let's come to God in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for this passage here that we see this illegal, this... This mock trial of Jesus Christ. The only man who's ever lived who was sinless. The only man who's ever lived who should never have gone to trial for anything. And yet he was on trial pretty much for being who he was. God in the flesh, the Messiah, the Son of God who sits at the right hand side of the Father. And he was crucified again for being who he actually is. But he was crucified so that we might be forgiven. And accepting him as Lord and Saviour and living for him, we are your people and we can praise you. And although we are horrified by the trial and horrified by the abuse and the mocking and the punching and all the other things that went on and horrified by the cross, at the same time we are thankful. We're thankful that you would send your son. We're thankful that he would come into this world. We're thankful that he would go to that cross in our place to take our sin and give us his righteousness. And we're thankful that because of that we are your people. Amen.